0: The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au.
1: Ajahn Brahm is a spiritual advisor of the Buddhist Society of Victoria, including Newbury Buddhist Monastery, which Ajahn is fully supporting. Ajahn Brahm is the abbot of Bodhinyana Monastery in Serpentine Western Australia, and spiritual spiritual director to BSWA and Dhammasara Nuns Monastery, as well as having advisory leadership role in Santi Forest Monastery, New South Wales, and many other Buddhist organisations in Australia, Singapore, Indonesia, Hong Kong, and other countries. We're very happy to have Ajahn Brahm's presence in Melbourne over these couple of weeks, and are very blessed to receive Ajahn's teachings. At this point, I would like to invite Ajahn Brahm to start tonight's guided um, or uh, Q&A session. Um, so thank you again, Ajahn, uh, for, for joining us. And we're we'll very looking forward to hearing your answers to our questions this evening.
2: And I'm also looking forward to hearing your questions. <laughs>
1: right, so off you go. All right. So we do have questions in coming into um, the live chat already. The first question, Ajahn, um, that has come in already is: Yes, I am in my twenties in university. Mm-hmm. How can I be kindful when unemployed and looking for jobs? Can you also share some key Buddhist principles for a fulfilling lay career in the noisy STEM fields?
2: When you are kindful. For- You can also uh, learn how to relax yourself. And also you can be much more sensitive to the people that we are meeting. A very good example of that is that story which I read as a student myself, which was uh, from uh, a little book uh, by Tolstoy, The Emperor's Three Questions. And there, he said the emperor had, uh, he wanted to start his own spiritual path, basically his own religion. And he noticed that he only needed the answer to these three questions. When is the most important time? Who is the most important person? and what is the most important thing to do? And this was a long time uh, before Eckhart Tolle started talking about um, uh, being the present moment. This was Leo Tolstoy. And so it was an old story, I think, from from Russian folklore. And of course, the most important time was now. It's a time when your future is being made. And I understood that one very easily. But the next answer was powerful. The most important person was a person right in front of you, whoever that happened to be. It could be a kid. It could be just some uh, big shot but it didn't matter, the most important person is the one right in front of you in this moment. And the most important thing to do was to be kind. Not to cure the ills in yourself or in the world, but be kind to them. Because that kindness was much more deep and powerful than trying to think this person is wrong or I'm wrong, I need to be changed. Caring is what makes that change happen for the better. And because of that, those three answers, when I I do recall reading those and being so shocked by them, I never expected that. And I was just walking around the streets of Cambridge for a couple of hours just contemplating how true they were. As a student, I'd often go up to these lecturers who were much more important than I was. And they made me feel that because I tried to ask a question and never engaged with me. They were trying to get rid of me. I was not important to them. And later on also, I always wanted to change things. Later on in my career as a Buddhist or as a a teacher, I always wanted to make sure that the people who uh, were living with you could get trained and could get changed and become better human beings. But after a long time, I realized that what really worked is to care for them and teach them to care for themselves and care for one another. With that kindness, that care rather than curing. We had a lot of eccentric monks uh, in Bodhinyana Monastery, and you see many of them here. (laughs) But they're kind and they're lovely, they're good meditators. So that is actually how I found out I could um, practice the Buddha's teachings and still have a very, very good monastic system. And even raise money to build places like this and to build ourselves and to have a lot of success in the life which I have. Just because it's a monastery doesn't mean that these teachings cannot work out there in the world. And in fact, before COVID came and politics intervened, I remember giving a talk at Cathay Pacific in Hong Kong, and the human resources manage, manager for the whole of Cathay Pacific was so impressed with the Empress Question story that he incorporated that in all the training for all the staff at all levels who worked for Cathay Pacific. He found it amazing, simple, but powerful. So that's how you can use some of these teachings in your daily life. And of course, you may have heard me say, that's also a valid practice of meditation. Sometimes people would say to me that, oh, I'm sick, I'm tired, I've got no energy. How on earth can I meditate? And the answer is, you know, can you be in this moment? Can you Make whatever you're experiencing, right in this moment, whatever this experience is, can you regard that as the most important thing in the whole world? Don't look for meditation objects, look what's right
0: there in front of you in this moment. Can you care for it? Instead
2: of trying to cure it, get rid of it, just care for it. And I said, yes, to all those three questions. If you try that as a meditation, especially when you're sick, in pain, or in distress. It's amazing how powerful that is. You get in very, very deep states of meditation. In this moment, whatever you're experiencing is really, really, really important, the most important. That means you engage,
0: and you give it this beautiful kindness. I care for this.
2: It's teaching me something, I'm not quite sure what, but I respect this moment. And that means, You have no negativity. You don't want something else. You're in this moment and you make peace with this. Very powerful meditation object, meditation technique, and also a great way for whatever you're doing in your life. If you want a job, when you go and see that person who gives you the interview, just make them feel that they're important. Listen to them, be in this moment, don't worry about anything, and just care for what's happening. And then so often you come across as confident engaged and able to adapt to whatever is needed in this moment that's the answer to the first question i hope it was useful for you
1: thank you very much Ajahn the second part of that question related to um, sharing some principles for a a fulfilling lay career in a noisy stem fields i don't know if that's uh, particularly different from other fields, do, given that's your background. Do you have any thoughts on that field in particular? STEM field? I'm not quite sure. Uh, science, technology,
2: oh, okay, uh, yeah.
1: engineering, mathematics, I think.
2: Okay. <laughs> I know you used to call it that when I was uh, young. But anyway, that being noisy, you know, so much of um, greatest science was done in, in silence. If you were just... Um, Taking the results from an experiment and assessing the data, or you were just working on a maths problem. Sometimes just not forcing yourself, not being so concerned with finding an answer, but just being engaged with the problem. As I remember, sometimes I think some mathematicians can experience and appreciate this. Sometimes when you had a problem to solve, and then you started just doing the maths and looked at it in a different way. And sometimes you could find these brilliant solutions or you saw somebody else, somebody else's work who solved an incredible equation with these amazing just new ways of looking at things. The thing which I remember was uh, this scientist, Paul Dirac, and his uh, theory of the electron. And he just used a couple of standard formulas and then just found a new way of solving what looked like an impossible problem using matrices. And when I read that and saw that, I was, I was in tears. It was beautiful, just like any other work of art, any other person who, who solves a difficult problem in an incredible, innovative way. It, it did bring tears to my eyes and it had been so much joy. But what we were doing there, you were so absorbed in the problem you were solving. There was no noise outside. You were focused inside on the problem and the noise just faded into the background. Sometimes that happens. You can see people just looking at their their screens of their iPhones and they, they cannot hear what's around them outside. They learn how to focus. And how we focus is whatever you, know, you wish to put your attention on. Give that importance, give that joy as well. And it just draws you in and you don't hear anybody else. Make a little bubble. And that means there's no noise at all disturbing you. That's a few nice ways of doing things. When I, when I used to travel, is one of the tricks I used to do, when I was traveling on these long flights, sometimes I would ask for the headphones. It wasn't to look at the movie. It was I could put those headphones over my ears so the person sitting next to me couldn't ask me any questions. <laughs> I was pretending to be in solitude. I was in solitude. It was a wonderful thing to have innovative ways of finding silence and peace. If you ever want to be creative, innovative, silence and peace, that's where all the best ideas come from. Even, this is a a topical for our times of COVID, even um, in the cottage magazine, which they keep sending me from Cambridge, and it's just trying to get donations from me. It's really stupid because I ask donations from other people, and other people ask donations from me. (laughs) It's crazy. But anyway, in this uh, edition, they were mentioning that um, uh, Sir Isaac Newton. He was up at Cambridge, you know, during the uh, the plagues at that time, and he had to. They had to close down Cambridge because it was too dangerous, and he went to a friend's or a relations' farm up in Suffolk, and that's where he said. He did most of his greatest intellectual achievements in that solitude you know, between uh, some of the pandemics. And sometimes his great advantages in, in solitude, being at peace. Of course, for monks or nuns, that's brilliant, having an opportunity to be in your heart and just allow silence to envelop you. And in that world, you can create that silence. It's not that hard to do just a couple of times in my life, I tested myself out. Uh, some Burmese wanted me just to sit quietly when they were doing a, a demonstration in the middle of Perth, opposite Hay Street, Mao, uh, for some of the difficult human rights abuses which were happening in Burma at that time. And anyway, uh, I, no, I knew the people, I said, well, it's not really political, it's just kindness. I said, "Okay." So I just sat there on the pavement, no cushions or anything. Uh, opposite one of these video game stores, I think, what's it called? Times Zone? Yeah, an arcade. It was really busy. It was noisier than the traffic going past. And I thought, wow, this is a great test to see whether you can just zone in, focus inside rather than listening to all this crazy music and, and uh, traffic and stuff. It wasn't that hard. Uh, sit down quietly, focus inside for a couple of hours, and just get very, very peaceful. So, you know, this is what you can do. You can just focus. And you learn the tricks of focusing. It's not force, it's like seeing the importance of what you're looking at, valuing it, making sure that, that is the most important thing in the whole world for you right now. So, other stuff doesn't take you out. You come on some meditation retreats run by some of the great monks and nuns over in Melbourne, then of course you can do those sorts of things. It doesn't have to be absolute silence. You just allow the sounds outside of you to
0: disappear. Okay.
1: Thank you, Ajahn. The next question is Dear Ajahn. What is the Buddha's view on mental problems such as anxiety disorder and negative thoughts? Does it have something to do with karma? And if so, how do we deal with it? First of all,
2: anxiety disorder. Stop stigmatizing it and calling it disorder. You've got negative thoughts. This is a slave. Okay. Another Winston Churchill's quote, I think, against Clement Attlee, they were going to compete in an election after the Second World War. And Winston Churchill said, Clement Attlee is a very humble man, but then he's got much to be humble about. <laughs> the use of language is sometimes very, very funny. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's. Uh, Whatever we are, but I've got the question now. Um, you too. Yeah. When I tell, when I tell a funny story and joke, I just laugh and we were,
1: all, we were all enjoying the story. The question, Ajahn, was the, the Buddhist view on mental health problems such as anxiety disorder and negative thoughts? Yeah.
2: there's forgetfulness.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's not always there. That's the other thing. That anxiety. You're not always anxious, you're not always, uh, but this is one of the things even with schizophrenia, you're not always um, exhibiting uh, schizophrenic behaviour or thinking. It's a part-time thing. And this was one of those experiences which I had over in Singapore when I was asked to Uh, contribute to a a conference up in, I think it's Woodlands, uh, about the 50th anniversary of the mental health facility in Singapore. And they were trying to turn it into a hub for everybody in the region. And I gave my talk that even something like schizophrenia or autism there's more to a person than the schizophrenic episodes. They're not just always autistic. There's an autistic spectrum these days. There's so many different bands of it, but also people move from one band to another even during the day. Anxiety, you're not always anxious. So I said that when we realize that all afflictions are temporary, And even just in one day, you can move in and out of them. And first of all, you should never call a person schizophrenic. The person who experiences schizophrenia from from time to time. And that's actually the insight which I got from visiting prisons. There's no such thing as a criminal. There's no such thing as a thief. There's a person who has committed a theft. The person has broken the law. They've done so much else in their life as well. Why just measure a person by one or two acts? Or measure a person by one or two episodes of anxiety? Or say schizophrenia. When you see it that way, you can actually see that they are much, much more than those problems you're focusing on. And this is one of the reasons why that after I finished my talk, one of the professors at this facility said he enjoyed my talk so much, he wanted me to come to his unit in this big complex uh, to bless his ward. Then I noticed that on his um, neck was a big crucifix. Said, But you look like you're a Christian. He said, yes, I'm a Catholic what are you asking a Buddhist monk to bless, to bless your unit for? He said, because I respect what you said. And I got very interested. I said, well, what particular unit, what part of mental health are you a professor of? And he said, schizophrenia. He was the head of the schizophrenia unit in the Institute of Mental Health in Singapore. And I said, how do you treat schizophrenia? in your unit? He said, I don't. That got me really interested. You're the head of the schizophrenia unit and you don't treat schizophrenia. He said, yes, I treat the other part of the patient, which is not schizophrenic. He was a Catholic, a lay person. I couldn't help myself, but raised my hand. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. At least somebody is seeing deeper into the problems which we have in life. Label somebody or you label yourself as anxiety disorder. That makes it much worse. You become the anxious person. And instead you have episodes of anxiety. It's not always anxious. And then when you look at the other part of yourself, I call it in brief, watering the flowers rather than watering the weeds. You focus on the faults, the ailments, they grow. You focus on the other part of yourself. And soon the flowers,
0: they choke out all of the weeds. Interesting way of looking at things. That's a nice way of looking at things. There's many other ways as well, but that's enough for now.
1: Thank you very much, Ajahn. The next question is, uh, Namo Buddhaya, dear Ajahn Brahm, may I please ask, when rebirth happens, (laughs) when rebirth happens, what exactly is reborn, if there is no self? It is the process, the
2: stream of consciousness. When one of the greatest of the teachings of the Buddha, Gotha Gotasutta, there the Buddha said, "You can't say there is something, you can't say there isn't something. there is a process. a process with nothing you no know, inside of it, cause and effect. like you may sort of have this is I don't think I'm giving any any uh, clues away here. You all know that one of my favorite foods for breakfast is baked beans. Imagine a bean. And it goes through the process, turning it from a raw bean into a bean you get out of a can and put on my plate for breakfast. And you know that I must admit that I was very impressed uh, one day when I was visiting Sri Lanka and I was well enough known there. You know that my nickname in Sri Lanka was the smiling white monk. And that's my nickname. So they realised. Now I've got a smile on my face most of the time. But anyway, you got an invitation because I was well known to um, breakfast at the president's house. And to this day, I, I don't know. He's probably president's done many, many bad things, but one good thing which he did that was President Rajapaksa, Mender Rattapaksa. One of the things which I'll always be grateful for. He served me breakfast with his own hand baked beans. I said, how do you know I like baked beans? <laughs> he did his research. Little small things like that, doesn't you know, sort of touches people's hearts. But anyway, how does a bean get made? You know, you have something in the beginning and something in the end. But that is not the same process as the stream of consciousness. What was there in the beginning causes for the next part of the process, which causes the next thing, the next part of the process, which causes the next thing, the next part of the process, but it's nothing which goes through all of those bits in the process. It's like a string of bees without any string going through them. They're close together, one causes the next and that becomes what we call the stream of consciousness. That's one way the Buddha called it, vinyana sota. So you can't say there's nothing. You can't say there is something. It's one of the Buddha's uh, other explanations of the middle way. Between existence and non-existence.
0: Brilliant teaching.
2: Why do we always say there has to be something? or there's absolutely nothing. So we see this process. Because it's a process, it can come to an end. Just like, I can't resist my physics. Just like this universe.
0: Does this universe exist? And where the heck did it come from?
2: We know it's only so many, uh, what was it, something like 14,000 million years old or something. Not more than that. But anyway, you, you you can give a time scale to it. Where did all this energy come from? Even though we all know you cannot create mass or energy, just energy and mass, they they can interchange. They cannot be created or destroyed. So how do we solve that problem? It's very easy. There are such things as, I'm not talking about emotional states, negative energy, such as, my cup of tea, a cup of water in a gravitational field. So actually to get this free from the Earth's gravitational field, I have to use up a lot of energy to actually to free it. It has a negative energy component. Mass in a gravitational field has a negative energy component. And I remember talking about this to our local uh, professor of physics at University of Western Australia, Professor David Blair. And I said, what if, you know, if all of that energy of all the mass and all of the energy in this universe, it could all come together into one spot, would it cancel out the positive energy, mass energy and the negative energy of things being in a, in a force field? What happens if it all canceled out? I remember him, I always remember this because I was only positing theories. I didn't know any evidence for this. I always remember him turning around to me and saying, wow, Ajahn Brahm, you're really up to date. Omega equals one. That's the way a scientist says I agree with you.
0: (laughs) So, this universe, there's nothing here. It all balances out by the stream of consciousness, you can emerge slowly out of nothing and go back to nothing. You're not here. You're just a perturbation of the fields and you will soon come to nothing.
2: I kind of like that idea. I always say from science, that it was a great uh, Kiwi physicist, Rutherford, who split the atom. But what does the word
0: atom mean? It's a Greek word, meaning indivisible. But he wasn't the first. There was somebody who split the Atma. The Lord Buddha,
2: there's nothing there. We always think that this is a fundamental particle of stuff, which makes up life, the things. Then you can split up, and it's just made up of other stuff. That's all. There's nothing as fundamental. Same as it happens. Nothing in you which is fundamental. Fun, yes. Mental, yes. But not fundamental. I'm just making it up to make it a bit lighter. Anyway. So that's not what gets reborn. It's a process, continuous. I've shown a few of you photographs, which I unearthed, I think last week, of you know, me. It's 37 years ago, there was a young monk in Bodhinyana, and a lot of you couldn't recognize which one was me. I was really thin in those days. I mean, really thin. Almost, no, that would, could have been evidence to sue somebody. <laughs> but these days I've made up for it. So you need your balance. Anyway, let's get the next question.
1: Thank you, Ajahn. You snuck a science lesson in there with the Buddha, <laughs> Buddha's teachings. Yeah, why not? Yes. The next question is, um, Ajahn, as you learned more about Buddhism, did you have more questions about Buddhism or did you have fewer questions and just focus more on sitting calmly?
2: The more I sat calmly, the more those questions vanished. Well, What are questions anyway? One of the similes is, it's a, a common simile, not just from Buddhism, is like to look at your mind like a lake of water or a pond of water, depending on what you want to imagine. And all the thoughts on top of that water are like the waves on the surface of the water. And part of those thoughts are questions. And of course, we want to find answers to those questions, but can you really find answers to the waves on the surface of a lake of water? What would happen? if for some way, some reason, that lake was so still, there wasn't even a wave, not even a ripple on the surface of the water. This is leading on to an old simile. I remember one of the, the Sion Masters in South Korea at a conference we were doing, and he did that simile. And I thought, oh, you know that simile as well, isn't it? it's part of all Buddhist traditions. But when there's no waves on the surface of the water, especially if it's up in the mountains in a full moon night, you get this perfect reflection of the moon and the stars in the heavens above you. Perfect. If there's any waves on that surface, it distorts the image. This is like whenever you have thoughts or even questions, it distorts reality. You don't find the truth through questions. You've got to ask the questions, but then after a while, you realize those questions just make more questions. And those make even more. And after a while, you have these great moments of stillness. We don't need any questions anymore. You can see the heavens. They're right in front of you. And it's personal experience. And as they say in Buddhism, it's experience which is free of the five hindrances which distort reality. Often we see what we want to see and we just, we can't see what challenges us too deeply. And because of that, we don't really see what's out there or in there or anything. We see what we want to see. When those five hindrances are subdued, then we can see much clearer the truth of things. Weird but when your five senses are uh, subdued, you think, oh, now I can see Dukkha. But you see it with a big smile on your face. <laughs> That's weird too. That's something which really challenged me, that I'm supposed to be experiencing Dukkha. It was so much fun. A good example of that. Uh, Many of you heard this story, but it just comes up and it's a really nice... I don't know if, uh, Sunim, you've heard this story before, but when I was teaching a retreat over at Jhana Grove, it's a bit of a challenging story, it's a bit gross. Please excuse me. (laughs) Yes, you know what's coming. (laughs) So I was having some nice meditation, but like everybody else, I had to go to the toilet. So I went into the the toilet between meditations, and then I, I did what they call it in Australia number two. You know what a number two means, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then my mistake I, I had a really good meditation before, so my mind was really clear and bright. And my mistake was actually looking into the bowl to see what I'd have uh, I'd just deposited. And honestly. You can't make this up because it's ridiculous (laughs) to make this up. What I saw there was the most beautiful piece of feces I've ever seen in my life. Now, next time you go to the toilet, do a number two. Next time, have a look. It's not just something which is smelly and nasty. It's actually just the way it's all put together. So this one was like a work of art, you know, just you know the, the big parts, the small parts, of the balls, the way they're all just joined together. And I was thinking, this, and I've been to see you know, great uh, carvings before. This was like something done by Rodin well or somebody, even Michelangelo. To see just the way that it all fat together, and then I started looking at the colors. They weren't just brown. it's just different shades of brown. And the way they interacted together. You know, you need someone with an artistic taste to be able to paint something, you know, which was just so, wow. And then I got into the aroma. (laughs) Oh, Oh, no, come on. Sometimes we have incense. Sometimes we have flowers. And some of that, I don't know, to me, is like a bit fake. This was (laughs) real. This was actually earthy. This was just so basic and true to nature. And I was pissing out on what I've just deposited, the most beautiful turd I've ever seen in my life. And there it was. (laughs) I was going wow, wow, wow into the toilet bowl. And then I (laughs) honestly, I thought I should take it out and show someone. But then I thought, no, maybe that's not appropriate. <laughs> so then I went to press the button on the top of the, uh, the flushing mechanism. I couldn't do it. It was just, how can you, how can you just discard something it's so beautiful and so wonderful? <laughs> and it was only, I, I put it down to the training I've done in all my life, you know, meditation with people like Ajahn Chah. You had to try for many years to let go of something which was so beautiful. Eventually I did it. I pressed the button. The most beautiful beautiful thing which I've ever laid under a number two disappeared out of my life forever. So sad. But what that taught me is beauty, fragrance.
0: Where does that lie?
2: A lot of times, I don't know if you've ever gone on pilgrimage to India, and because it's India, people usually go and see the Taj Mahal or whatever. And I remember just standing next to one of the other people on my pilgrimage, and they said, it's a bit OTT, isn't it, Ajahn over the top? I said, yeah. You know, what is beauty? What is attractiveness? What is a work of art? What is, where does beauty come from? And beauty comes from your mind, you've got a very, very still mind, three of the hidden says, whatever you look at is beautiful. And that's where you're happy. Let's explain one of the poems in, one of the bits of poetry which have inspired me when I was a student, William Blake, to see a world in a grain of sand, see a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand an eternity in an hour. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's what happens when you have a deep meditation afterwards. A grain of sand, a little flower, it's gorgeous. And this is actually where you start to have little insights into why, when you get into deep meditation, the suffering, yeah, it's so gorgeous. Anyway, just just explaining what happens. So that's where all the questions disappear. Because the answers don't make any sense. For the truth.
0: Why was a Buddha smiling and happy?
1: Okay, let's have another question. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, the next question is, in meditation and in awareness of moment by moment, how do we stop craving for continued existence and the craving to prove one's sense of self.
2: <laughs> First of all, future existence. If you're really mindful and open up, you find, yeah, it's shit is beautiful, but you can't really keep it that long. Same with existence. Do you really want to exist all the time? After a while, you get a bit bored with existence. I did tell him one of the talks was a hero. My might be the last talk I gave over in Perth about um, Groundhog Day. The guy doing the same day again and again and again and again and again and again and again. He got so fed up with it. But much better than that was a movie I saw as a layperson was uh, of, of uh, Dracula. And Dracula, if he gets lured out into the sunlight, if the rays of the sun hitting, he dies. And this Dracula, He'd been alive about 400, 500 years. And in the movie, he'd done done everything. Nothing more to experience anymore. And he was just afraid of dying, but bored of living. And after a while, he just decided to be lured out of his darkness in his cave. So the rays of light shone on him and he died. That was the end of him. And after a while, you find through samsara, what more do you need? What more do you want? You've been there, done that. So after a while, from moment by moment, experience, if you have wisdom and see things really deeply, you find that there yeah, you have fun. There yeah, you have build monasteries and deep meditations, so you can help people, you can laugh. But after a while, how many times do you have to laugh? So after a while, it's time just to let go and disappear. Manish. So that's what happens. But so little by little toys, you develop moment by moment awareness and uh, craving for the future. Goodness gracious, you've been there. Well, a lot of times in the future, when you crave for the future, you make up these fantasies which actually aren't real. As somebody once said, when you have a fantasy, you always win in the end. In real life, you usually end up losing. <laughs> It doesn't go quite the way you want it to. You know, say this to those monks who still have craving, lust. We're just talking about one of the monks I knew as a young monk. He disrobed and got married. He's one of the last people we thought would get married. He's always telling other people, oh, don't get married. Oh, it's a lot of suffering. Oh, just how can you... And he, he ended up doing it. So anyway... <laughs> Afterwards, what happens uh, this is, I've noticed with a, a man's mind, or even like a monk's mind, the fantasies which you have. In the fantasies, it's always perfect. It's like you airbrush out all the faults in your partner, all the faults in life. We always think, oh, isn't it romantic? Amid the, the love of your life, you get married, and you live happily ever after. No way, not even perfect marriages. If you do really find somebody which you, you really get on with, then they die, or you die first. And that really so. Sort of, the more that you are compatible in the life, the more pain it is when you separate through death. So in any which way, you never live happily ever after. But in your fantasies, you always do. It's one of the reasons, it was actually, some Sumaito told me this, he went over to visit his family over in the United States and he met one of the, his school friends. He went to school with her. He said, oh, it's great you're here. I'm getting married uh, the next couple of days. Can you come to my, my marriage ceremony? And I just, I thought you were already married. But yeah, this is I think number nine. I said, This is your ninth marriage? Yes, why? And she said something which I thought was very honest. She said, Well, look, I enjoy going out, courting, finding a nice guy, falling in love, getting the engagement, just planning everything, and the excitement of the ceremony is just wonderful. I love that. Is what happens after I get married I don't like. So, so she said, so, you know, a few months after getting married, I'll get divorced and start on over again. It's really good fun. <laughs> at least she was honest. Because there we have got the hopes, the fantasies are still alive. They haven't been challenged yet when you actually live with somebody. And I thought, wow, that's I remember that one. We teach other people like that. It's one of the reasons why, you know, the fantasies which we have, the dreams which we have, we always add to them so we can see the wonderful outcome of what we would like
0: to happen, rather than what actually does happen.
1: Okay, next question. Thank you, Ajahn. The next question is, Ajahn Brahm, you have been my teacher and comfort for two years. My life is in total, absolute shambles. Everything is broken. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is broken. My question is, how to set aside my anger and self-loathing?
2: Well, look, if I've been your teacher for two years, whose fault is it? (laughs) So I'm going to self-loathe myself and get angry at myself. Is that a good idea? Of course not. (laughs) Yes. I do remember, I don't know if I told the story here or somewhere else, but anyway, of going to Berkeley to one of the global conferences on Buddhism and being introduced by this uh I don't say young, but maybe she was younger than Ranjani anyway, maybe about 30. <laughs> They're well dressed, and she said, I now want to introduce Ajahn Brahm, my teacher. She said. And I go to bed with Ajahn Brahm every night. (laughs) And I said, what? You don't do that. I'm a good monk. (laughs) And of course, she was laughing. Everybody got what she mentioned. I listened to his talks every night on the the internet. (laughs) But anyway, um, that self-loving... Why on earth do you have self loathing? I wouldn't be your teacher if you didn't deserve. So, sort of having a good teacher to look after you and talk to you. So, sometimes self loathing, the best story about that, you've heard it so many times the two bad bricks in the wall. You know, that time in Bodhinyana Monastery where I learned how to lay bricks and two mistakes, they were crooked. And I wanted to destroy the whole wall. I turned Jacko, I was a the boss then, so I actually literally asked him, can I get some dynamite and blow the wall up so I can start again? He said, no, we can't afford it. Get a bulldozer and blow it up and push it over so I can start again. I wanted to destroy it because the two bad bricks gave me nightmares. And I was just so ashamed that I messed up one of the first things which I'd built. Until this gentleman came, and he said to after about three months of suffering, he said, "You know that's a beautiful wall." And to me, I said, "You must be blind. Did you leave your glasses in the car? You know, can you see those two bad bricks?" And he said, "Yes, but I could also see the nine hundred ninety-eight perfect bricks." And that was honestly the first time in three months I could see anything other than my mistakes. Every time I looked at that wall, my eyes would go to the bad bricks. I couldn't see the good ones. Once he said about there's more bricks above, below, and there were far more in number. It was true, I was a blind one. I was always focusing on the things that I did wrong. Never could see the things which I did right. Because of that, that caused me you know, lack of sleep. And then once he said that, it was true. Then that wall was still there. And, but the best part of the story, as many of you know, I would often teach that at cancer groups. And this one builder came up to me once. After the, the cancer group, I think he had some type of cancer. And then he said, I'm a professional builder. I want to let you know that all builders make mistakes. He said, I'll let you into a secret. In the building industry, when we make a mistake like that. We tell our clients, it is a feature. We charge an extra couple of thousand dollars for it. <laughs> <laughs> so please, I think. Ajahn Benito, please remember that when these builders out there make mistakes, they're not features. Don't let them charge you anymore. <laughs> we left out the insulation. That's a feature. It makes you much closer to nature. You feel more cold, more heat. Okay, so don't take that. Go, my young. I should say what go, my young means. Go means what what is that, is that a ball. My um, yang is what comes out the back end of a ball. I'm not allowed to say yes. So I say go, my
0: yang. <laughs> okay, anyway, yeah, so what's the next
1: question? Thank you, Rajan. Just before I go on with the next question, just to remind the people in Zoom, um, we haven't had any questions from the Zoom participants yet. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, Um, Please feel free to raise your hand. You will get priority as someone who's there to ask a question in person, or you can also just type your question into the chat there. So we have about five questions at the moment, Ajahn, and about half an hour left in the session just to give you a running total. Um, So we're doing very well. So the next question is, may I ask, how often should we revisit Dharma talks? I am not sure if I'm over-reliant on them. Thank you.
2: I re- revisit Dharma talks all the time. I often repeat stories I said last week. <laughs> but every time, I, sometimes I feel guilty about that. How many times have I told the story of the two bad bricks and the wall? But one thing I'll let you know, I've told that story. I've heard that story many more times than anybody else. Every time I say it, I hear it. But anyway... Every time you do, I've been told this, and I think it's absolutely true, that when you listen to a Dhamma talk again, you always get something more out of it. I don't know how many times I've listened to, you know, things like the Anattalakana Sutta, even though things like Dhammajaka Sutta, I love them. Every time you look at it, On my six-month retreat, when I was in silence for six months, I just took that one sutta, the Anattarachana Sutta, and that was the one I chanted it, I contemplated it. It was in my head all the time. Brilliant, beautiful. I never got tired of that. Some of the great teachings of the Buddha. You know, you get your favourite ones, the ones which really fit you, and you just keep chanting it for the whole of your life. It gives you so, so much joy and happiness and depth of understanding. You can always see something deeper into it. So that's why I keep revisiting them. Yes. Yeah. Get your favorite ones. The ones you, you really you resonate with. And keep on going there. They're beautiful.
1: Okay, that's one. Four to go. Thank you, Rajan. Yeah. Next question is, I've been going through a divorce. I'm in a difficult position as I get a lot of blame and I cannot explain openly about any valid reason. The person I married is not straight, but I am. How to get less blame?
2: Look in this world, you'll always get blamed. I've done many, many things which I should have been blamed for, but I wasn't. I was <laughs> done good things where I was blamed for something which I didn't deserve. There's this old. Uh, prisoner up in Karnat Prison Farm years ago. And he came up to me and he said, Ajahn look, I trust you. And I've been following you for a while. And I'm being honest with you. I'm really honest. The crime for which I've been put in jail for, I did not do. I didn't do it. I really am innocent. I know everybody says that, but I never did that robbery. I was put in jail for I didn't do it. I've been put in jail for something I didn't do. When I heard that, I realised he was being honest. He was honest. And then I thought, when you're in prison, it's very difficult to get any help. You don't have money, maybe one telephone call a week or something. So I thought of some lawyers I knew could maybe take up his case. When I was thinking what I was going to do when I got back to the monastery, this was in prison, he told me this. Then he gave me this really cheeky smile. He said, but Ajahn up. There were so many other other robberies where I wasn't caught. I guess this is fair. <laughs> this is karma. <laughs> well, he just told me the law of karma. Well done. He did do that robbery, but many other robberies he did do. Well, like when people get fined by the police for speeding, they get really upset. Well, why did this happen to me? How many times have you spent you haven't been uh, caught by the police? Sometimes there's a sort of balancing of accounts somewhere, type of karma maybe. But anyway, that's one of the wonderful ways of understanding about life. You've been blamed and probably nothing you could do. You didn't do anything wrong. That's why I just really dislike the whole idea of blaming. You know, all those times I've met people, no one deliberately tries to, to you know, harm or hurt anybody. I've never met an evil person in the world, I don't think such thing exists. Simply, what about psychopaths? Poor psychopaths, and they're not really in contact, you know, with their emotions. That's so sad. So anyway, that looking at that, people make mistakes. When we make mistakes, is it right to blame them? Remember this person, I met him years ago, And he was, when he was a kid, he did an exam at school. And he didn't do well in that exam. And his grandfather, who's the leader of the family, was Asian family, really blamed him. You're stupid. You're no good. You're hopeless. And because that was his grandfather, he looked up to. They really thought that. He was crazy. He was stupid. He was no good. And from that time on, he just, uh, instead of trying hard at school, he assumed he was no good. So he got by by just you know, having a very nice personality, being kind, telling jokes, being good fun. And when I ordained him as a monk,
0: I figured out this is a very intelligent young man.
2: And he became a great cook. I'm giving away who this monk is. He became this great cook. I remember when we need—he was an Anagarica, We needed someone to do the cooking in our retreat, at the last minute because the person who usually does the cooking, and they got cancer and they just—they couldn't come. And so, could you do the cooking? He said, oh yeah. And he was—you know, he was uh, Vietnamese. He had his walks in the kitchen and he was doing it all by himself with a big smile on his face, stir-frying this and stir-frying that that. was working really hard, but he always was just so jolly. And I remember so many Singaporeans, they're supposed to be listening to the talk or doing some meditation, they just went to watch their lunch being made and it was just, they enjoyed it so much because his happiness and joy was infectious, even I went there to watch him. And he became a monk. He's you know, a very, 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 very good man now. And highly intelligent. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Uh, know his name? Sorry? Yeah. I never told you, so I'm. Truth. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Santuti. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> He he does all this amazing building work and when he did some um, woodwork brilliant and he's a highly intelligent monk, the only reason that he never got a degree at university because he was convinced he was not clever he took that on board but anyway I'm happy that that occurred because then he became a really good, good monk instead so little things like that you can see just Encouragement, I always say to a person, yeah, you can do it. Of course you can, why not? Give it a try. And honestly, all these years, I've done lots of ordinations now so then.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I don't know who's going to make it, who's not going to make it. Yes. I can't tell. And there's so many people, the most unlikely people.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: They become great adjuncts and teachers. And that just... is so somebody wants to order, yeah. Come, give it a try, see what happens. That's nice when you have that positive attitude. You can't predict the future. You've got this incredible powerful qualities in a human being. See what happens. So, anyway, uh, I've gone way off the question. But, anyway, sorry? Blame. Blame, yeah. So you blame somebody and that just suppresses them. And you can't blame anybody. If, instead of blame, whenever I used to make silly mistakes, Ajahn Chah would never actually blame me. He would laugh. He thought it was so funny. You know, that time just wash one of the, well, with Ajahn Chah, the one time when, <laughs> <laughs> early years, we didn't have many things in monastery. So whenever you needed anything, just like soap, I needed some soap you know, to wash my body with. So we had to go to Ajahn Chah. You know, even though he's a big teacher, we didn't have many people in those days. So it wasn't sort of so busy with talks and stuff. So I went to him and said, no, please, more oh, poor, can I have some soap? But I was just learning Thai. And what I said was not actually the accurate pronunciation of soap. Soap was sabu. I said sapo, which means pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. In my mind, I was saying soap, have some soap. <laughs> and he said, What do you want pineapple for? I said, Oh, to wash. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of the great gifts I gave to my teacher. He laughed for days on that one. <laughs> and he said, these people in actually in England, they're so advanced. <laughs> you know, in Thailand, we can only wash in soap. Over there, they're washing pineapple. They're very, very advanced. Well, I made it very happy. <laughs> Things like that. Even when any of the monks here, they make stupid mistakes. I do the same thing. just think it's so funny. You entertain me, <laughs> so please make any mistakes, <laughs> and I can just <laughs> enjoy it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like I was once. You know, I usually you know, drink tea, but and one day. So I said, oh, it's a hot day. Some apple juice. Any the apple juice? I yeah, I've got some apple juice. They brought me up some apple juice. It was cooking oil. oil. Oh. <laughs> it looks the same. In a glass, it was like oil. <laughs> that wasn't very tasty. <laughs> but instead of blaming the poor person who did that, I just laughed my head off. So that's a much nicer way of living. And so you don't blame a person. You give a look to what it say on there. It says oil, not apple juice. But a little by So these mistakes happen. And they make monastic life life just so much more fun. No one deserves to be blamed. When you don't blame others, of course you don't blame yourself. You don't have guilt. I don't know, I don't know why people have guilt. For the last little example. one of the Anagarikas of Bodhinyana Monastery. He came to see me early in the morning. He said, I hadn't slept all night. He broke one of the precepts. I think I often say this when people say that, they will confess about, said, who did you murder last night? (laughs) (laughs) No, it wasn't murder. It was, uh, he was hungry. He snuck into the kitchen about midnight. He made himself a sandwich, and he ate
0: it. I my precepts. I'm sorry,
2: I don't, I really want to be a monk. I said, okay, it's wonderful that you confess. Now, there's all these other things you can eat in the evening as monks. You know, in our tradition, we can eat cheese and chocolate and apple juice and oil, but I would recommend that. It's always allowable to eat more at lunchtime so you're not hungry in the evening. Okay, so that's fine. Don't do it again. And then he stopped and said, what? That's it? You're not going to keep me out of the monastery? He said, no. He said, no, you made a mistake. Learn from it. He said, that's not good enough. (laughs) He said, you've got to punish me. You've got to give me some penance. So I don't receive a penance, get punished. I'll do it again. That's my character. Oh, crikey. some people are so difficult to train. So I said, oh, okay, I'll give you a penance. I've just been reading this book by John Hughes, The Fatal Shore. And I said, well, in those days, in in Australia, if you make any mistakes, you get whipped. You get the cats of nine tails. That's what i would just been reading. So I said to this, man, okay, I'll give you 50 strokes of the cat as your penance. This poor guy, his face went whiter than the clothes he was wearing. And he really thought I would do it. That's the nice thing, when people don't understand what a monastery is like. The thing I'd actually do that, so 50 strokes of the cat for you, that's your penance. We had two cats in the (laughs) monastery. Find either one of them, one, two, stroke it 50 times, and earn some compassion and kindness. So you don't blame yourself. And that's what he did. So that's the 50 strokes of the cat punishment in a monastery is finding a cat and stroking it 50 times.
0: Kindness, compassion. they didn't have enough of that. Okay,
1: next question. Thank you, Ajahn. Magically, we have more questions now than we did 10 minutes ago. So we'll just see how many we can get through. The next question is going to come from someone in the Zoom chat. So, Sumanya, I'm just asking you to unmute now. And if you would like to take yourself off mute and ask the question to Ajahn.
0: Thank you, Ajahn.
2: Ajahn, um, I love your story just now about breaking the precept. I uh, break the precept and I didn't keep my sila, and I poke a bear and now the bear is chasing me. And I feel very guilty to provoke a bear. Is there a way I can live with it and uh, Uh, still be a good practitioner? Just try and understand you're not perfect yet. If you were perfect, you would be able to live out there in the world. you come and join the great holy nuns of Dupi Buddhist Monastery of the disciple of Sunim. Because, you know, you're perfect. So remember, it's when we make mistakes, that's where we learn. So you don't feel bad about it. You acknowledge it, which you've just done. You forgive it. So no blame, no punishment. And you learn. Everybody learns from their mistakes. I learned, having just uh, caused trouble to Ajahn Chah, my teacher, I learned how to pronounce soap properly from that time on. So you learn. And that's the best thing you can do. That's life, is we're not perfect, but we learn from our mistakes. We grow in perfection. The last thing we need is to feel bad about ourselves.
0: But I know the bear is very
2: provoked, and uh, I, I don't know how to... What type of bear is it? No bad, you can give up and attach it to you.
0: It's my mother, sorry.
2: Your mother. Oh, well, that is also very natural. And in the end, you ask your mum about uh, that experience, and then your mother will probably say, Oh, look, I forget that a long time ago. Do you know what I once did to my mother? You know the story of the birthday present I gave her? No. You don't? i said that the other day. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I was about seven or eight years of age. And it was my mother's birthday. So I wanted to get her a special present. And so in London at that time, there was a new type of food called... Mashed potatoes and jellied eels. <laughs> so I went to the shop with my pocket money and I bought a live eel from the shop. It's very easy to do. And I put it in a little box and I wrapped it up with this gift paper. It's best as a seven or eight year old kid can do. I put a nice ribbon around it and tied it in a nice little bow and a nice card on there to mummy. Happy birthday with love from your son. <laughs> and I, I, it was done that morning, so at lunchtime, I could give it to my mother. Mummy, happy birthday. And my mother was touched that her little son had a special birthday present for her. And she was almost like crying, just joy. Can you imagine what I must be like? Unexpected gift. And she <laughs> opened the gift. <laughs> And then when she opened the lid, you know, I was so restrained, I could actually keep a straight face, which was amazing. And the the eel, it wasn't trained at all, but it just did it by itself. It raised its up its head and looked my mother straight in the eye, like a snake would do. Ah.
0: <laughs>
2: my mother screamed her head off. <laughs> And I had my exit strategy, I'll tell her a bit. I planned exactly what I would do once he would opened it. I ran away and hid for a couple of hours. <laughs> and afterwards, my mother, I was just a seven-year-old kid, okay. She understood the humour behind it. Just don't do it again, okay. <laughs> and I became a, great, a good monk, okay. So I don't know what you've done to your mum. But anyway, just if you actually talk to her about it, she probably said, oh, come on, that's nothing. Just, you know, children, parents growing up together, forgive it. Don't worry about it. It's not a bad thing. The very fact that you talk about it with someone like me means that it's a wonderful way of healing. Okay, to another question.
1: Thank can... you, Ajahn. Oops. Next question is, Ajahn Brahm, how can someone be assertive and firm, yet still be kind and compassionate at the same time?
2: Easy. I'm assertive that kindness is the most important. I'm firm in my meta. So what's the problem? I'm assertive and firm. It's amazing, when you're kind, you get all these monks have been staying with me the last three or four days. They give me cheese in the evening, which I don't want. They're giving me extra cups of tea or carrot juice, which I don't really like. But they do all this stuff for me, and I don't even want it. They're so so assertive. Some of the stuff I do like, I do like the sausages. Yeah, <laughs> that's what happens when you're kind and gentle. That people just Want to help? And that's a wonderful way of living. It means you do get fat, of course, but you know that's worth it.
1: Okay, next question. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, the next question is: How do you know what people need without hearing them say it?
2: Exactly. So just ask. First of all. <laughs> Don't just assume. <laughs> All <laughs> the dancing and bursting out and laughing. <laughs> it's true, people think they know what you like. But, you know, sometimes it's great fun for me anyway. What was it? This was when I went over to, it was a United States or Canada or something. But anyway, somewhere on the West Coast over there. And they uh, said, well, Ajahn Brahm's coming to our house. What can we get him to eat? And they rang Ajahn Bramali, every <laughs> monastery because they knew they wouldn't get a straight answer from me. And Ajahn Brahmali said, Ajahn Brahmali, he really likes shepherd's pie. Shepherd's pie. said, oh yeah, we can do that. So, when I went to their house, I said, we made this for you because Ajahn Bramali said, this is what you like. And I had the shepherd's pie, and I thought, wow, this is really nice. And you know what shepherd's pie is? Yeah, it's put, Mashed potato, potato with some meat underneath. And just when I took a big spoon of it to put in my bowl, it was potato on top, but very spicy Sri Lankan curry underneath. <laughs> 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 oh, because I put so much in my bowl I had to eat it. Oh, that was really hard. <laughs> So don't just assume. Just ask. It's much easier. And if you get the wrong stuff, anyway, it's good fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's not the worst food I've eaten. Even I just I showed you some pictures of the first year at what uh, at Bodhinyana Monastery. And there's this couple that are very, very kind. The, the biscuits? Yeah. They gave us these biscuits, special biscuits they got from Denmark. And they buttered them and offered them to each of the mugs. And Ajahn Jacare was about to eat his. He said, hey, the butter is moving. <laughs> I was to him. I could see, yeah, it was actually, there were worms in the biscuits. Oh. Yeah, because the biscuits had come on a ship from somewhere. There's worms in it. That's disgusting. disgusting. <laughs> and I said, um, "I've already eaten mine."
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I
2: didn't see them.
0: <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and instead of blaming the donors or blaming myself for eating live things, it just—I tell everybody about it and laugh. The next time, be careful with some biscuits.
1: You know <laughs> <laughs> what's inside them. Ah, what's inside? Okay. Well, next. Oh, next question. Yes. Thank you, um, Ajahn. Supianto has a question in the Zoom room. So, if you'd like to come off mute, Supianto, you can ask Ajahn your question yes. now. Hello, hello, Ajahn. Uh, thank you, Ajahn, for the opportunity for to listen to the Dhamma.
2: You're welcome. Very good. Next question, please. <laughs> uh, I got I got a question, Zaza. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. My question is uh uh regarding the Karanya Metta Sutta. Yes, yes, yes. Um I came across
0: with two uh the the last sentence in that sutta. By not holding fixed views,
2: uh, yeah, I came across with with uh, that translation, and then I uh, there was also another translation by not holding false views. Yeah. So can you please uh, clarify that? Uh, what does it really mean? Well, even that translation, we haven't got fixed views about that translation, whether it's fixed views or false views. But actually, it's the false views, is what the real meaning is. It has this part of the word ditti, and when it's always by itself, it always means like the false views, the wrong views. And samaditti was always the correct views. But the fixed views became very popular, as if you can you can believe whatever you want if you're a Buddhist. I think it was that film star, was it? Oh, uh, oh, what's her name? I'm not sure, but... Oh, Thurman? No, not it? Uma Thurman, no. Mm-hmm. It was somebody else. But anyway,
0: oh. what? Well,
2: she was like a movie star. Uh, oh, Tina Turner. Tina Turner movie star. She was a singer. singer. Tina Turner. She was a Buddhist. So, why did you become a Buddhist? And she said, Oh, because if you're a Buddhist, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) Who taught you that? So, it's not quite true. But what it is, is that sometimes if you make mistakes, you can learn from them. So, you're not like forbidden to go to hell and get kicked out of the Buddhist uh, monastery because you made a mistake. But anyway, it really means by not holding to wrong views, then the pure-hearted one having clarity and vision is not born again into this world. In other words, having good views. So we're trying to translate it as best we can. But sometimes you make mistakes. One of the biggest mistakes in the Karaniam Matha Sutta, well, not really mistakes, but just sometimes the way it's chanted. It's, and it explains a lot, why the poor bhikkhunis have a difficult time. in <laughs> You know that one? Was, it? yeah. We've tried this out a lot. It said, let none deceive another. <laughs> <laughs> let none, as <laughs> I <go>, will wish <laughs> <shown> upon another. <laughs> 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 but that doesn't mean anywhere. it means N O N E. So
0: you,
2: <laughs> view. that's force view. yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of the nice things if you're a Buddhist and a practitioner, you know, you can have some laughter. That's amazing for your health, especially when there's respiratory diseases around, it exercises your lungs. And number two, it has a great effect on your meditation. Afterwards, you can meditate and you're uplifted. You can have some beautiful states of meditation after that. And this laughter is one thing human beings, we can do together. No matter what type of Buddhism, what gender, what sort of age, the laughter is something which is lovely and infectious. And Ajahn Chah did make people laugh, amazingly. One of the stories, which I remember him doing, he really pushed his luck a few times, I must admit, uh, pushed the boundaries. There was a major general came to visit him. And in those days in Thailand, even now, the army has huge power. And he went to see Ajahn Chow, you know, with his uh, lesser generals and colonels and majors, a you know, big group. He came to see Ajahn Chao, he said he needed some special blessings, some holy water. He said, I don't, I don't have any. He said, oh, no, please, please. Can I have some special holy water for my gentile? So said this Major General. So I said, OK, come over here. And so he got the Major General to bow his head. And honestly, it scared me. A few things I get scared of, but I'm scared to see this. <laughs> <laughs> All over this Major General's head. And then, with his hand, our Chah just rubbed it in. And I said, this is special. I really do this. And that Major General, oh, he was so blessed. He said, oh, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. And he bowed and gave a donation or whatever. I don't know what it was next. but It was amazing. Just, and we were just trying to stop laughing. You know, the gift away afterwards laughed our heads off. But well, he would do something like that. It was amazing. <laughs> 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 so I think there's the, another version of that you gave one. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, About the Bickeners wall. No. Do you Wall. the other Bichonis one? one. Mm-hmm. I won't say no. Okay, yeah, no. We're running out of time. Already over time anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Okay. Is there any other questions? Thank you,
1: Ajahn. There are a few more questions, but I think we might just have one more quick one. And apologies to the rest of the people, we won't be able to answer your questions this evening. But Ajahn is giving uh, the Dhamma talk again next Sunday and the guided meditation next Monday, so there'll be more opportunities for you to ask questions then. So we'll finish with the last question, Ajahn. Um Dear Ajahn, so nice, finally you are here. Would you please give a suggestion? When I meditate and see the light, I get frightened out of my meditation. What should I do?
2: Uh, well, look, eventually you're going to see that light. That's actually when a person dies. Five senses stop or get really subdued, and you go towards the mind. And people say you see that light when you die. So look at this as like training. what happens when you die? Beautiful way of looking at it. You get that training so that when you actually do die, you know exactly what's going to happen. You don't need to be afraid. So one thing you can do to be serious is actually, if you're on a meditation retreat, especially, or you get that light very often, make a resolution when you start meditating. If I see the light, I will not be afraid. If I see that light, I will not be afraid. If I see that light, I will not be afraid. In your own words, three times, then forget it and just meditate what you're doing, you're programming in your mind. And it's amazing how that works because then you just meditate, and you get very peaceful, very still, see these beautiful lights coming up. I and mean, usually you get afraid or excited, but the, almost like an antivirus, it works automatically just kicks in. And you, you don't get afraid. You just go a little bit deeper and see what happens afterwards. Nothing to be afraid of. I often say the only thing you need to be concerned about, Ajahn Bhatma, are you being honest? Is there any dangers seeing a light? And there is. People who see a light often, they lose their hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. You're going to have to become and That's the only danger. It's not really a danger at all. That's a benefit. Okay. So thank you all for listening. Uh, sorry if it was a bit irreverent at the very end with a few funny stories, but I think that's important also. Monks are human, nuns are human, it's nice to tell some stories, real stories, which enliven the Dhamma and make you want to listen to more.